Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I want to just thank you so much for your word. And thank you for your people. And thank you for your spirit. And through these things, you promise to manifest your son Jesus. Would you manifest your son Jesus in our midst this morning powerfully? Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Amend our lives. Lord, set us on the right path. Help us to believe and think the things that are in keeping with reality. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, last week uh, we began our sermon series on the Gospel of John, which may just be the most popular book in the entire Bible. And as we dig into it, we might also find that it's the deepest. Right? Oftentimes we think of the Gospel of John as sort of the kiddie pool. It's like if you're a new believer or you're a non-believer, you know, read this. And, uh, and it's good for that. Uh, but St. Gregory the Great once said that Scripture is a kind of river which is both shallow and deep, in which both the lamb may find a footing and the elephant may float at large. And there may be no clearer example of this than the Gospel of John. John's gospel has the simplest, the most down-to-earth style of Greek in the New Testament. Indeed, if I may say this tongue-in-cheek, it's almost as as if it was written by a simple fisherman. But what this simple man has to tell us about Jesus and about the love of God is so glorious, it's so lofty, that the church later came to refer to John as St. John the Theologian. Indeed, while the first three Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share so many details and qualities uh, that they're generally referred to as the synoptic Gospels, a Greek word which means to see together. You may recognize the word optic in there. This fourth Gospel offers a fresh and much wider perspective, a much wider vision of the life of Jesus. So, you could think about it as like a football state stadium. So you're, you're watching FSU play. You know, the synoptic writers, uh, the first three Gospels, it would be like they're all sitting in just about the same section of the stadium. Now, where would John be? Probably up in the skybox, right? Uh, if you've ever seen, the church has uh, little kind of like logos for each of the Gospel writers, and it's not on accident that the logo for the gospel for John is the eagle. He's soaring high. Because John is writing near the end of the first century, about 50 or 60 years after Christ's death and resurrection, he's had more time to reflect on these things that he's witnessed and to sort of put the pieces together. And he also expects his readers to be familiar with the other gospels. And that allows him to give a more personal account, to fill in stories and details that others have never shared. So we might say that John's gospel is both more broad and more personal. Now, it might be helpful uh, at this point to uh, differentiate actually between two different Johns. Okay, so you have the Apostle John, the author of the fourth gospel... And then you have John the Baptist, who's the main uh, figure in our text for today. In fact, I want to show you a medieval painting of these two figures standing side by side. If you put that up there, Zach. The painting comes from the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And um, as Providence would have it, I came upon it just last week while I was in L.A. And 
since I knew that I would be preaching on this text today, I snapped the picture for you guys. And uh, on the right, um, you'll see um, the Apostle John, one of the 12, with a quill and a book in his hand. And that quill and that book, of course, are celebrating his authorship of the fourth gospel. And though John is depicted uh, as part of uh, the inner circle uh, of, of Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John in the three synoptics, he never speaks of himself in his own gospel by name, choosing instead to refer to himself in the third person as the beloved disciple. And while he look, uh, may look rather scholarly here, we remember that John of Zebedee was actually a Galilean fisherman when Jesus called him. Here he's portrayed as an elderly man to connote that he lived longer than all the other apostles, even though John, who is the younger brother of James, is generally regarded as the youngest among the 12. In fact, most scholars think that the apostle John was in his mid-teens when Jesus called him. By contrast, uh, as we look at John the Baptist on the left, we see that the artist portrays him in a more youthful fashion, which is fitting because John the Baptist, he was martyred in the prime of his life. Notice the camel skin clothes sticking out from under his robes, and rather than a pen and quill, John the Baptist is depicted pointing away from himself to Jesus, to the Lamb, who was actually originally at the center of this altarpiece. Now, while there's a lot that we can learn uh, about these two great Johns from sacred art, and I just share this by way of introduction, we are blessed to have a much more reliable uh, source of truth on these two figures in the Word of God. So let's turn to John chapter 1 in our Pew Bibles. It's page 886. And as you're turning there, again, this book comes from the Spirit-inspired quill of the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, or at least someone who is helping him to write his personal account. And our passage today deals directly with John the Baptist, with the question of who he is, verse 19, and why he's baptizing, verse 25. Now, as a way of honoring the spirit of John the Baptist, who constantly points away from himself to Christ, we're going to talk more briefly about John, and then spend the majority of our time talking about his testimony about Jesus. So beginning in verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John, i.e. John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So their first question to this dynamic figure, who has gained such a major following, is, Who the heck are you? And John responds by confessing, who he is not. You see that? Verse 20 says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So he's not the Messiah, the anointed one. We already learned that he was not the Messiah from the prologue in chapter 1, verse 8. But it was important to hear this testimony from the baptizer's own lips. Because history records that even at the end of the first century the martyred John still had a number of confused followers who were loyal to him, who had never transferred their personal devotion from him to the Messiah. Indeed, the Apostle Paul comes across some of them on his missionary travels in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and we read about that in Acts 19. 
And so John the Apostle wants to make doubly sure uh, that this confused sect that still exists in the end, near the end of the first century gets the memo that the baptizer is not the Christ. Verse 21 continues, mentioning two other figures that he is not. They asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And beginning with the second figure, this, this prophet, John is denying that he is the prophet like Moses, who we recently learned about from Deuteronomy 18. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostles actually identify this mysterious figure, this new Moses, with Jesus himself. But what about Elijah? Well, you may remember, why, 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 are, they, why are they thinking that he might be Elijah? You may remember that um, in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah never died, but instead uh, was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. And uh, not only that, the Jewish people in this day were expecting Elijah to return before the Messiah. In fact, Jewish people still expect this today uh, because this was foretold in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And John the Baptist, he even dressed like Elijah with his leather belt and his camel hair. So how is it that John the Baptist can deny being Elijah? Especially when Jesus says elsewhere, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. Matthew eleven fourteen. Does it not appear that John the Baptist's self-understanding is in conflict with Jesus' judgment? Well, it's worth pointing out two things. First, technically speaking, John wasn't Elijah or any kind of reincarnated figure from the Old Testament, just as Jesus was the prophet like Moses, but he wasn't Moses himself. So John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah, yes, though he himself is not Elijah, as he says. Second, as to whether or not John understood himself to be fulfilling Elijah's role in Malachi 4 as the harbinger of the Messiah, and his clothing indicates that maybe he did, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Let me tell you why. Because divine revelation is not dependent upon human understanding. Sometimes the spirit-inspired words or actions of people in the Bible mean more than the people realize, but never more than God realizes. Did King David know that his poem in Psalm 22 would so perfectly describe the crucifixion of Christ a thousand years later? Did the Persian King Cyrus know that he was fulfilling prophecy when he allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland 70 years after the Babylonian captivity? In verse 31, we learn that John didn't even know that his own cousin was the Messiah. He says, I myself did not know him until he saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because divine revelation is dependent upon divine sovereignty, on divine providence, and not upon the proper understanding of God's messengers. It's the same for us today, brothers and sisters. As you follow Jesus, your lives are being used for God's purposes in ways that you can't fully see, that you wouldn't be able to calculate or properly reckon. I remember one time a high-ranking Christian leader, a regional director for InterVarsity uh, Campus Ministry in the Southeast, shared a story about being invited to this dorm Bible study uh, by this super introverted girl. And he came to the Bible study and he said, I never saw her again. <laughs> Um, but he stuck around, and 
He never saw the shy girl again, but he couldn't even remember her name. But the Bible study that he went to changed his life. And he went on to impact thousands for Christ on campus. The point is that we're often unaware of God's providential purposes for our own life. How do you know, beloved, whether the crying child you're spending countless unseen hours investing in at home will become a great missionary for the gospel? How do you know that the students in your class or the customers in your store or the patient in your clinic or for that matter the stranger that you speak a word of encouragement to out on the street, how do you know whether they'll change the world? And through them, you will be bearing fruit. So abide in Christ, love your neighbor, and trust our sovereign God with the fruit. We do not know fully who we are, or what our purpose is, or the significance of our actions, but our triune God knows, and that's enough. As John the Baptist reiterates in verse 33, he said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is who, God the Father, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend, that is God the Spirit, and remain, this is he, that is God the Son, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that the self-understanding of a biblical figure is never important. For example, John the Baptist is clearly correct in understanding the nature of his ministry through the lens of Isaiah 40, as he says here in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, the purpose of John's ministry was to prepare for Jesus' ministry, right? To make straight the way of the Lord, to proclaim the word of God in order to prepare the way for the word made flesh. That's why the Eastern Orthodox Church refers to John the Baptist as St. John the Forerunner. And I think that might even be a more helpful title for him. So to put it simply, John's answer to the question, who are you, verse 19, is that he's the one who prepares the way for the Lord. And his answer to why are you baptizing, verse 25, is that he's doing it to prepare the way for the Lord. Now at this point in the sermon, I think it would please St. John the Baptist very much if we moved on from talking about him and looked to the one he pointed to. But I want to make one final note about this group in Jerusalem, that's mentioned, that sent a delegation of priests and Levites to question John. Notice that the group is referred to generically as the Jews in verse 19, but is later identified more specifically as the Pharisees in verse 24. You see that in the text? As we read on, this phrase, the Jews, is often used in this gospel as a shorthand not for ethnic Israelites but for Jewish leaders, for those from the region of Judea or from the official representatives of Judaism in that day. This is important to note because sometimes this book has been accused of proliferating anti-Semitism and sometimes, Lord have mercy, it has been used in that way. But we can be assured that this is an absurd misuse of John's gospel when we remember that the author himself was ethnically Jewish. John the Baptist was ethnically Jewish, and of course, Jesus himself, ethnically Jewish. 
The thing is, by the end of the first century, Christianity was beginning to distinguish itself from Judaism, not least because many of the followers of Jesus, even those who were ethnically Jewish, were increasingly being kicked out of the synagogues. And so the language of the fourth gospel really reflects this social context. And while the language may sound rather stark or black and white to our ears, keep in mind that the story of this gospel is much more nuanced. It adds a lot more color in the story it has to tell, including converts from the ranks of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, or so-called followers of Jesus who betray him for money, as we'll see with Judas. Likewise, we see Jewish disciples that are quick to doubt, like Thomas, and Samaritan outsiders who are quick to believe, like the woman at the well. So there's a more nuanced story being told here than just the, the, just the language we see on the surface. Okay, so I promised the memory of John the Baptist, who is now a member of that great cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 11, that's cheering us on from heaven. I promised that we would move on from him to this testimony about Jesus. So what John has to say about Jesus in verses 29 through 34 is rather profound, actually. He teaches us five absolutely foundational truths about Jesus Christ here. Number one, he identifies Jesus' ministry with the forgiveness and atonement for sin, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 29. Number two, he tells us explicitly that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 34. Number three, John teaches us implicitly, that is by implication rather than by direct statement, about the pre-existence of Christ before he came to the earth. Right? John implies this truth in the form of a kind of riddle we find in verse 30. We also found it in verse 15 of the prologue. After me comes a man who ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. In other words, while John may have been six months his senior... Uh, as his cousin, right, in terms of birth, birth order, he's keen to imply that Jesus has a more ancient, perhaps even eternal, I don't know if John understands that, but a more ancient pedigree. As Jesus will later say in his gospel, before Abraham was, I am. Number four, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah or anointed one. And this anointing occurs, as we said before, when, John, when Jesus is baptized by John. John bore witness, verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Number five, John claims that Jesus will be the one to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's testimony is that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the pre-existent one, the anointed one, and the one who will anoint the world. And all that in five verses. How's that for a catechesis lesson? Now, from these five foundational truths about the person and work of Christ, I want to zero in the rest of our time on the two that speak about the work of Christ, what Jesus came into the world to do. And especially upon the first, which has to do with the forgiveness and atonement for sin. We must never forget, brothers and sisters, that forgiveness is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Central to the purposes for which Christ came. 
1 Timothy 1.15 declares, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We should fully accept what's coming next. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Likewise, Jesus himself said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And John testifies here in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The baptizer repeats this enigmatic title again in verse 36 when he passes two of his disciples on to Jesus. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they drop everything and follow him. But what does this mysterious title mean? Where does it come from? Well, while it it may sound confusing to modern ears, it would have deep symbolic resonance to any Jewish person living in that region in that day. This was clearly sacrificial imagery, forgiveness imagery, atonement imagery, all firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Examples of these themes abound in the Old Testament, but just to name a few, it would have immediately reminded the Jewish audience of the Passover lamb which had to be a male without blemish, reminds us of the sinfulness, of G- uh, the sinlessness, excuse me. Uh, costly slip of the tongue there. Uh, of Jesus, a male without blemish. The Jews were to sacrifice the lamb and take some of its blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. Exodus 12, 7. Now the Passover is an act of redemption uh, rather than an act of uh, sacrifice for sin, But it does have a substitutionary quality, doesn't it? The Lord goes on to promise in 1213, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, that is the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, the lamb dies instead of God's people. Now, reflecting on this imagery and its relevance to Christ, the Apostle Paul would later proclaim a phrase that we repeat in our Eucharistic liturgy every week. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This sacrificial imagery from Exodus is repeated and applied prophetically to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This time, it is in the context of sin-bearing, The servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he chooses not to defend himself. The prophet Isaiah would go on to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe this good news today, beloved? Do you trust it in your bones that the Lamb of God has redeemed you? That he died in your place for your sins? That he did so willingly he didn't have to be coerced? He didn't choose to defend himself? And all this was a manifestation of God's great love for you. The worst thing you've ever done. Laid on the shoulders of the Lamb of God. The debt you never thought would be paid. Forgiven. 
the secret transgressions that you're ashamed even to admit to yourself. The Lamb of God was pierced for them. He bids you to come to him to be healed by his wounds. Will you believe in the glorious promise of the gospel this morning? According to John 1.12, the promise of full pardon is open to all who are willing to receive Jesus, who will believe in his name. A free gift. Will you believe in his name? Will you believe in the Lamb of God? Perhaps most powerfully, when the Jewish sacrificial system is formally inaugurated in Leviticus, we learn about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place in the tabernacle or later the temple to offer a sacrifice. In this case, it was a goat, but it was a sin offering for the entire assembly of Israel. Remember the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 16.16 says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because their transgressions, all their sins. This substitutionary imagery continues as the high priest takes a second animal, the scapegoat, and laying his hands upon the head of the goat, confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. It's a really peculiar ritual. And all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness, outside the city, right? Leviticus 1621. Now consider the relevance of the day of atonement to our Lord Jesus Christ and to his death upon the cross. When Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, was sent away to suffer outside of the city gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, Hebrews 13:12. And what was it that was placed on the head of Jesus at his crucifixion? The crown of thorns. And try to remember, do you know when it was that thorns were first mentioned in the Bible? Can anyone remember or guess? What's that? Genesis 3, yes. Uh, they're first mentioned as part of the curse placed upon the ground in response to the fall of man. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, the Lord says to Adam, and by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So thorns are given as a kind of symbol for sin, as a sign of the curse, right? As a reminder of our impending death. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, what is the crown of thorns but a symbol that Jesus Christ, the willing scapegoat, is bearing our own sins upon his brow, absorbing the curse onto his own head and putting death to death. Later on in Genesis, the thorns come up again, don't they? This time it's in Genesis 22 when a ram is caught by its horns in the thicket, forming a, a kind of crown of thorns, and it becomes the substitute for Abraham's only son. It was just as Abraham had told Isaac on their way up the mountain, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Genesis 22, 8. And guys, it's with all these bits and pieces, all these themes in mind, brewing and marinating, as it were, for hundreds and hundreds of years in the background of the biblical imagination of the Jewish people that John proclaims to the crowds, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who will die once and for all definitively for our sins. This is an exceedingly glorious gift, brothers and sisters. And though it needs to be appropriated by believing in Jesus, as we've already learned in John 1.12, let's not miss the universal scope of this atonement, that Jesus came not just for individual sins of certain select people, rather, he came to take away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The forgiveness of sins is central to the gospel. But there's actually more to the good news than this. The second testimony of John the Baptist to the work of Christ is that he will be the one to baptize the world with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus doesn't just want to forgive us and leave it at that. He wants to fill us. Jesus doesn't want to just heal our past. He wants to renew our future. He doesn't just want to atone for our sins. He wants to fill us with himself and make us more like himself and empower us to do the work of the kingdom of God. This is the twofold work of Christ. We see it on display in this passage. He takes away the sins of the world and he baptizes with his Holy Spirit those who will receive him. Glorious promises. Do you need your sins forgiven this morning? Believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, he will come to dwell in you. And he will transform you from the inside out. Man, I, I can testify, I am not who I'm going to be. But I thank God that I'm not who I used to be. Amen? Is there any other witnesses in here this morning? I am glad Jesus didn't just forgive me and say, I'm going to leave it at that. I am glad he breathed the breath of his Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to make you a new creation and I'm going to transform you from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to the next until you look more like my son Jesus. And even though I'm not going to finish in this life, at the last, at the blink of an eye, the twinkling of an eye, he will make us shine with glory. And he who became sin, who knew no sin, will make us the righteousness of God. Glory to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who could write this stuff? Only, only Almighty God. Amen.